Hello and welcome to Textile Innovation hosted by WTIN. My name is Ruby and I'm the news editor and your podcast host. Each month we're going to be joined by a brand new special guest. So join me and my colleagues as we deep dive into what's new, what's interesting and what unmissable innovations have hit the market recently. We cover everything on the podcast from sustainability to startups and the latest research and developments. And we also quiz the experts in the fields about their new products and ideas across the huge spectrum that is the textiles industry. So, no matter what your interest is, WTA and have you covered, and we can connect you to everything you need to know right here from our central hub in the UK. In this episode, we speak to Graham Stewart about his innovation, Fibre 52, that could change the way that the industry dyes garments. Stewart's expertise within the textiles industry has taken him around the world, from Hong Kong to Australia, the US and way more. We pick his brain on sustainability, Fibre 52 and scalability, among other things. So first of all, hello and welcome to the episode. Very happy to have you here. Uh, thanks, Ruby. Thanks for inviting me on the pod. No problem. So do you want to start off with some of the basics? Um, you can tell us about yourself and your history within textiles. Yeah, Ruby, I'll, I'll try and keep this as, as short as possible um, as I'm into my you know, fourth working decade. Um, I began life as a dyer, um, commissioned dyeing in uh, Huddersfield, Yorkshire. Um, we had a number of dye houses. We were one of the largest players in Europe. I was fortunate in those days studying for my Society of Dyers and Colorists degree at Bradford University. I was able to, you know, relate that study back into, into practice. I found that to be a great way to learn. So after 10 years, uh, 12 years as a, as a, a dyer with 10 dye houses and um, some weaving and spinning, I moved to Dawson International, a large cashmere knitwear brand house. We own Pringle, Braemar, Valentine, George, Barry, and so on. A lot of knitwear companies. We were vertical, one of the largest cashmere companies in the world. We had a big agreement with China in importing cashmere. I initially headed the sales and marketing for the fabric divisions, and we were the world's leading sliver knit or forfer manufacturer. We had about 60% of the world market in those days. And then that took me to the States where we acquired large knitting and garment operations with sport and utility brands in the USA, Pennsylvania and New York. I ended up developing those brands in Europe and Asia, uh, commuted across the Atlantic for, for three years. I had 10 years with Dawson International. Then I became general manager of Europe for the world's largest wool processor and trader. Moved to Italy for a few years and then on to headquarters in Adelaide, Australia. General manager marketing with a big focus on China and Hong Kong. Joined our, our largest customer, actually, uh, Novel Industries, a large textile and conglomerate. Three years later, I was appointed general manager of Australian Wool Innovation the administrator of the Walmart company in Sydney, Australia. I then joined Nino Ceruti, a successful Italian uh, textile industrialist and designer. I then joined Shanghai Challenge Textiles as marketing director. Finally, I moved to Bozeman, Montana uh, from Shanghai uh, to co-found Duckworth. Duckworth, um, we called it and trademarked Sheep to Shelf because it was the first of its kind. Um, highly visible supply chain from uh, shearing my partner's 12,000 sheep through all the production stages to garment production and branded apparel. Which brings me to um, Charleston today where I live, uh, it's in South Carolina and um, Fibre 52 
Wow, that's impressive. You've worked in every area. So on to Fibre 52. Why don't you tell us about what it does, the history, its inspirations and goals and anything like that? Fibre 52 is a process, a process to bleach and prepare for dye and dye cotton. Um, in In a departure from traditional methods, instead of using the heavy alkali that's been the norm for decades, We use bioproducts. Um, So I've developed bioproducts to process cotton. That leaves cotton stronger um, and in its more natural state. And and the bioproducts are designed in in the process to work at lower temperatures with much quicker process times, using less water um, in comparison to traditional methods, um, less energy, and in most cases, uh, a considerably lower carbon footprint. The history, um, let's say in the USA, I've done a great deal of my own dyeing. So, you know, whatever I've done in my career, I've pretty much always had something to do with dyeing. And um, I did I did all my own wool dyeing for Duckworth. And I, I noticed that cotton was being processed with such long processing times. And I was invited actually to look at recipes and just see if I could do something with them. Um, and I noticed just how much time they were using, how much heavy alkali was being used with, with hydrogen peroxide um, without getting into the weeds. That does a lot of damage to cotton. This history was probably the inspiration to do something uh, better and more sustainable in cotton. The goals to be the go-to process for bleach and PFD and dyeing cotton around the world and to invest further in Fibre 52, we're committed to doing that as we roll fiber 52 out around the world we may you know down the line look at processing other fibers in a more sustainable way than is presently done so here at wtin we use a commercial readiness scale consisting of emerging scaling and then commercially ready where does fiber 52 stand on that ladder and what phase of production are you at currently and what are your production capabilities uh, that's a good question after our initial launch in december 22. We've been making great progress. If I can put it this way, we're currently in the emerging phase. That's as we that's as we relate to it, our phase, because we do think a lot about this with our growing team at Fibre 52. The great thing about our novel pattern pending process chemistry is that we're using commercially available biomaterials, which are already in the supply chain. And they're used every day for food and and in the pharmaceutical industries, as well as textiles. We think of them as bio inputs for our process chemistry, which means we can realistically scale to the commercial volumes that are expected in the textile and apparel industries around the globe. From day one, we've been focusing on that scalability, and, and this has helped us get into a lot of pilot trials, I can say, with some of the world's largest fashion brands and textile mills, and you know that, that's my daily life. We estimate at the pace that we're going to graduate from the emerging phase to what we call the, the scaling phase by some time this year. I guess to summarize that, we're in the emerging phase today, using scalable materials in the global supply chains. This year, fairly soon, I believe, we'll be moving into the scaling phase. Um, if, if we continue at this pace, which I'm sure we will. That's some exciting stuff. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to the actual process to bleach and dye cotton, can you tell me more about that? I started to question present process practices um, and, and embarked upon a, a great deal of trial and error, you know, plenty of error too, making incremental process progress, you know, to, to develop that better process. But importantly, I, 
I was doing that in existing equipment. I could see that, you know, there have been some sustainable moves, but sometimes you have to pay a lot for brand new equipment that doesn't exist and so on. I, I want Fibre 52 to work around the world in the equipment that already that already exists. I made a big breakthrough to answer your question about 15 months ago. I mean, using widely available uh, and inexpensive bioproduct, it was one product that I added to the process. There are only three to four in, uh, depending on how I do it, there are only three to four in, in, in the process. But um, found this particular bioproduct um, worked efficiently to catalyze the whole process. And this was a really big time-saving element that the process was really reduced in, in time. And, and so having got to that point, you know, we could see that the process was using up to, and I use the words up to because of the huge variation of equipment around the world, but it uses up to 50% less energy. And in many cases, up to 50% less water. And again, that, that comes down to the uh, existing dye machinery around the world, whether the liquor ratios are 10 to 1, 5 to 1, 4 to 1, whatever they may be. And we are well into a life cycle analysis um, with a prominent university in Europe um, in, in that a lot of the processing that we do around the world, we, we particularly in Europe, we feed into that u- university. And, and because we're under NEA, I'm not allowed to say which university it is. But meanwhile, we've, we've developed a calculator which we share with mills around the world so they can quite accurately estimate the savings that they can make by adopting Fibre 52 which that calculator is proven to be extremely important as we roll Fibre 52 out around the world. Amazing. So on the complete opposite side to that, can you tell me about some of the challenges that you've overcome already with Fibre 52 and and the technology? The Fibre 52 process to me is a complete change of mindset in, in the treatment of cotton. Remember, you know, this is a very traditional industry. We've experienced an enormous amount of interest, um, but I've got to say that often comes with a, a healthy amount of skepticism, let's say, in that, you know, this is, it's change. It's not a difficult change. As I, as I say, we, we're trialing across the globe, currently providing Fibre 52's efficiency and repeatability into those processes around the world with a great deal of success. Because it is important, the, the process is efficient and repeatable. But quite often a, a dyer or a technologist will insist that Fibre 52 cannot work. I mean, you know, I, I do a lot of trials myself and quite often dyers are very sceptical. You know, I often hear that, oh, the dye won't exhaust. Uh, there's not enough alkali in there or the temperatures are too low. The dwell times are too short and so on. You know, it's just great to see how pleasantly surprised these managers become once we've completed a few trials with them. And when I say trials, now those are often three to five hundred pounds, you know, so they're not small trials. Are there any current or future development ambitions for the technology, such as overcoming a challenge or venturing into a new area or fine tuning the technology any further? Uh, yes, Ruby, we're, we're venturing into new areas for present and future development as the word spreads. Um, a good example is inquiry from the non-woven industry, which I didn't expect. This will probably be a medium-term development, but the non-woven industry is an enormous user of fibre, whatever it might be, but also cotton. And also yesterday, for instance, um, we had an inquiry um, to quickly do trials in pad batch processing, which um, up to now we've we've not done. 
I think we've always to strive to fine tune and and um, optimize um, Fiber Fifty Two. Um, so, on a more broad topic, how do you think, with your experiences and what you've seen so far in the industry, how do you think the textile industry itself has evolved, and maybe more importantly, how do you think it hasn't evolved? I know we're in we are involved in what is a traditional industry. I've not personally seen a great deal of progress in the more traditional textile sectors over the last decade. However, I do feel the pressure to move and adopt these more sustainable processes as I I feel pressure coming down the pipeline, particularly from governments, um, from ecological bodies, from certification bodies who ask for higher standards to meet their certification requirements. And we're going through quite a lot of that right now. Of course, there's a pressure on industry driven by uh, ESG, you know, environmental, social and Uh, governance investing and also socially responsible and impact investing which you know we see a lot of these days these realities are driving textile manufacturers there will be more legislation there will be more pressure and on the topic of sustainability actually why is it do you think that textile manufacturers struggle to balance sustainability with profitability do you think these two things have to be separate definitely don't think that sustainability and profitability have to be separate. We do see there is a focus uh, upon the cost of raw materials, for instance, in dye stuffs and chemical costs. That's normal. However, we we have daily Fibre 52 discussions about using, you know, one or two or even three fewer wash-offs in dyeing because, you know, that wastes a great deal of water. For instance, one wash-off in the dyeing process will be, let me think, 10,000 litres of water per thousand kilograms of fiber. So you do that three times, you're into 30,000 liters of water. And, you know, fiber 52 does cut down. Uh, We do save water. We look hard at the cost savings and it's the same for saving time, for saving temperature and for saving energy. And we encourage companies, mills and brands um, to work with us in this as a day-to-day part of our trialing work. Um, And this is all about balancing sustainability with profitability. Amazing. And that is such a good place to end the questions and end the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on and chatting to me. This has been brilliant. Thank you. If anyone is listening who is interested in chatting with you further, what is the best way to get in touch? Thanks, Ruby. Uh, I would suggest go to fiber52.com. All our contact details are there. Um, and we very much encourage engagement with um, with your listeners in the industry. Thanks so much for having me on the pod, Ruby. It's no problem. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you have any questions for WTIN, then you can reach out over Twitter. Find us at WTIN Comment, or you can contact me directly at ruby at WTIN. And if you fancy sponsoring an episode of the podcast, please email sales at WTIN.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next month.